0: Before Norman speaks to us tonight, I'm going to read to you from the Word of God, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'm reading from the New Kim James' James's version. Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 1. For the law, having the shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things... Can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect for then would they not for then they would not have ceased to be offered for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected, however, for those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. The Lord will indeed bless this reading of his word and the preaching of his word. To his name be praise and glory. Amen.
1: Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's nice to see a lot of people that I know very well. Could I begin by saying that this is a lecture, a paper that I want to deliver, and uh, I won't be preaching. Most of or those of, of you who are here who have heard me before, I've either been preaching or conducting Bible study. Tonight I'm going to lecture on a subject that is very precious to me, the great high priesthood of Christ. <coughs> In systematic theology, The offices of Christ is the bridge, or the official glory of Christ, is the bridge between the person of Christ and the work of Christ. That is, between Christology and soteriology. When I speak about the offices of Christ, I may sometimes refer to the official glory of Christ. I usually divide the subject of the person of Christ into at least four parts, speaking about his essential glory and then his moral glory and his official glory. And then, of course, there's his acquired glory. So all glory is found in the person of our Saviour. But the Bible ascribes three, a threefold office to Christ, speaking of him as prophet, as priest and king. The prophet... He is the one who reveals God and his will to man in the Old Testament, in dreams, in visions and in verbal communications. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, while on earth, continued to fulfill the prophetic office by his teaching, fulfilling, of course, Deuteronomy 18, 16. And he continues to fulfill this role in the church today through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is also king. This refers to his sovereignty and is usually outlined as follows. His spiritual kingship and his universal kingship. And that's all I will say about that subject because I think it's going to be dealt with later. Tonight we're concerned with the fact that he's a priest. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And verses that I want you to think about tonight, I will read them now. For every priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness." Because in this he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. And no man takes this honour to himself. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. As he also said in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Of course, the passage that is the background to that in Hebrews 5, 1-10, is Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Another passage that we refer to is chapter 5, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be felt, or cannot be Sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's one point here that we need to establish very early on in our discussion, and that is this that a prophet represents God among the people, but a priest represents the people before God. And that is very important. Now, at this point, some might see this as a digression, but I see it as part and parcel of what I'm trying to say. I want to leave the subject just for about five minutes in order to give a brief analysis of the epistle to the Hebrews. Because all that I want to say about the high priesthood of Christ will be found in Hebrews. Hebrews. Now, it has been suggested that there are two main divisions to the book. First of all, dealing with the presentation of the superiority of Christ, and secondly, the practice of Christianity. Now, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, we have Christ's superiority to the prophets. Then, in verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 18, we have Christ's superiority to angels. And then we have a kind of parenthesis. The first of the parenthetical warnings, and there are seven of those. And that's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Then thirdly, there's Christ's superiority to Moses in chapter 3, 1 to 6. And then the second parenthetical warning in chapter 3, verse 7 to 4 and verse 7. And then point 4 is Christ's superiority to Joshua. Joshua. And that's in chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. And then we have another of these, parenthetical warnings. And then what we have in the rest of the doctrinal section of the book is Christ's superiority as priest. And then you have the fourth parenthetical warning. And then, and these are the three points I want you to think about. Christ's superiority as his, in terms of his priesthood, then Christ's superiority uh, the superiority of his sanctuary, and then the superiority of his covenant, and then the superiority of his sacrifice. And that's in chapter 9 and 10. And then comes the fifth parenthetical warning. Then you have Christ's superiority in faith, and the sixth parenthetical warning, and point number seven, Christ's superiority as a shepherd, and then the seventh parenthetical warning. And it seems to be that the character of the book is this. It's a kind of tract dealing with the superiority of Christianity to Judaism. And it seems as if the writer makes a point and then he breaks off with these parenthetical warnings to give a warning to those who were tempted to go back to Judaism. Because to go back to Judaism would have meant a renouncing of Christ as Saviour. Now, what I'm going to do now, and here I'm beginning, really, to deal with my subject. We're going to consider seven aspects of his fullness, sorry, seven aspects of his fullness, Christ's fullness, as our great high priest. And these are clearly developed in the epistle to the Hebrews. First of all, his resources of deity. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, we hear the father address his son in resurrection with the words of joyful greetings. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Chapter 1 verse 5. That this word refers to resurrection and that sonship is the very basis of the priesthood of Christ is shown clearly and is reiterated in chapter 5 and verse 5. So wherever the, source, wherever the source of high priesthood is described in Scripture, it is always a matter of sonship. And that's why I speak about the resources of deity. In his present ministry, the Lord brings the resources of his eternal person. Therefore, he understands every claim of the character of God before whom he represents us, In intercession, he knows no limitations, either in knowledge or wisdom. It is his sonship that brings to us the ground of confident assurance that he is faithful and will be faithful in his ministry as great high priest. So what I'm saying here, quite simply, is this. When we read through Hebrews and think of the character of his high priesthood, we're thinking of him as the eternal son, So his deity is part and parcel of this very important subject. Secondly, we're talking about his experience of suffering humanity. He became a man. Our Lord walked in this scene of time in the fullness of his Godhead is without question. But remember this, it was Godhead incarnate in weakness And pain. There, I'm using a quotation from John Owen's big commentary on Hebrews. So let's think about that again. It's true that he walked this scene of time in the fullness of his Godhead, but it was Godhead incarnate in weakness and in pain. So remember, we're talking now about the God man, the theanthropic person, the Lord Jesus. The eternal Son willingly became incarnate in order to represent us. Proof of that, chapter 2, 14. For as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And again we read in chapter 2, verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Chapter 3, verse 3, For consider him who endured, sorry, 12 and 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul and again in chapter 4 seeing that we have a great high priest who had passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our profession for we do not have an high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness and was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin so whether you think of the son in terms of the sacrifice he made or in terms of his intercessory work at the right hand of God, or his eternal blessing of his people, we must think of the person of Christ, the God-man mediator. The third point is his divine appointment. It is God's prerogative to determine who shall approach him, and who therefore shall deal with him on behalf of others if necessary, making offerings for sin and for his own sake. Jeroboam made priests of the lowest of people, which were not of the sons of Levi, but it was all of his own devising, and of course he invited sure judgment upon himself and upon the nation. Apart from all such spurious pretensions, It is true that no man takes this honor on himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. We read those verses earlier. The world is full of exaltation of self, but nothing of this dark pride had any place in the heart and the ways of the lowly Savior. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son today, I have begotten you. Hebrews 5.5 5. His entry into his heavenly ministry was altogether of God, who delighted in him, and it witnessed that he was all that God's heart could desire, hence his divine appointment. And the reality of that is established in this wonderful epistle that deals with the supremacy of Christ. The deep pleasure in his Son, in which God exalted him to the throne, was seen in prophetic light a thousand years before the ascension. David, by the Holy Spirit, looked across the centuries, heard the Lord say to his Lord, sit thou in my right hand, and bore thrilling testimony to that mighty induction into the heavenly ministry. So significant are David's words that they are expressly quoted three times in Hebrews and also in part three times. Not only was the son given the salute of solemn dignity, named of God a high priest, but he was appointed and confirmed by an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not relent You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When God made promise to Abraham, he added his oath to his promise, that to Abraham and all the heirs of promise there might be given two immutable things in which it was impossible for him to lie, his oath and his promise, or his promise and his oath. The sons of Levi knew nothing of the honor of appointing, appointment by oath to their priesthood. It was reserved for one whose glory should infinitely transcend theirs. They were frail mortals. He was the Son of God, risen in power. So then, we have talked about the resources of deity. We're talking about his participation in, amongst suffering humanity, we're talking about his divine appointment. Now let's look for a moment or two at his perpetuity in resurrection. So glorious is the priesthood of Christ that the ironic model could not be adequately picked a picture of it. It pleased the author of scripture, the Holy Spirit, in his perfect wisdom to liken another man to the Son in respect to this matter. Melchizedek was made a high priest not but not Christ to Melchizedek the likeness was derived part, partly from the reveal what is revealed concerning him in scripture and partly from the fact that much was hidden that was revealed shows Melchizedek to be a type of Christ in two respects royalty and worth of character. He was the king of righteousness, and the king of peace. In that, much was hidden, namely, all record of his ancestry, his birth and his death. He was displayed on the pages of Scripture, and only in that sense, as an abiding priest, unrelated to his prior ministry. Thus, he typified Christ in two respects of his solidarity and his permanence. To seek a link, to seek to link his identity with any, anyone else is absolutely futile. This was how it was to be, and it's obviously to be identified, Melchizedek, as a type of Christ. Uh, in the time for questions, some might want to ask some questions about that one because it is a controversial area. His priesthood is indeed a solitary one, derived from God's appraisal of the surpassing excellence of his person and of his atoning work. Its permanence partakes of eternity. He is a priest forever. And here is something for you to think about. Three functions are linked with his priesthood: offering, intercession, and blessing. Of these, the first was completed in his cross work. The second will be finished when we no longer need a high priest. And the third will never cease. So throughout eternity, the Lord Jesus will not only be our Savior who died for us, but he will be the priest who will be eternally blessing us as a consequence of his atoning sacrifice. Of this last it may be observed that the attitude in which the Lord took leave of his disciples at Olivet, that of lifting up his hands in blessing on them, indicates the eternal ministry to which he went. When every sadness of our journey and every trace of frailty are gone, and we shine in the fullness of our salvation, then those priestly hands will still lavish upon us exceeding riches of his divine grace, the sight of them will fill each heart with solemn gladness. For while the hands of both Melchizedek and Aaron were lifted up in blessing, they were never pierced like his. It is by virtue of his resurrection that Christ possesses an abiding priesthood, for he is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, chapter 7, 16. Only as risen from the dead could the priest, could the priest, the high priest, uh, be, be in this eternal office. His appointment was not like the priesthood which took up mortal men until such a time as they laid down their office in death. On the contrary, His appointment was based on the entire fitness of his indissoluble life to be the sphere of his ministry, a ministry glorious in the outpouring of his might. Aaron must give way to Eliezer and later to Phinehas, but the Son of God will have no successor. We read these words, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Neither his prayer nor its consequence in the salvation of his people in every need they have along the journey. He is there, never weak, always strong and always desiring their perfect good. Point number five, his moral glory. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. When I started to look at that text, I thought to myself, there's a sermon in itself, so if I leave some words out, please forgive me. But there is so much truth in this regarding the moral perfections of our great High Priest. He is and ever will be intrinsically holy. And we have to emphasize that and stress that today. I heard someone say recently, One of these TV evangelists, that the Lord Jesus was just a man like you and I, capable of sinning. That is not true, that is heresy. He is and has ever been intrinsically holy. There was in him no sin to disturb the purity of his heart as he walked this earth, nor can there ever be in his heavenly ministry. In his relation to man, he is guileless, always seeking their good. He is undefiled in respect to all the corruption that marked this poor race. No touch of evil has ever marred the beauty of his ways. Under the old covenant, the priests needed constant washings. Our priest, our great high priest, is immaculate in his heart and in his ways. We come now to the subject that I consider very, very helpful. And uh, when I'm feeling depressed and feeling downhearted, I always turn to the cross because we want to talk now about his all-sufficient sacrifice. And here I want to say something just off the cuff about typology. I know that there are some people who go too far with typology. They read more into scripture than is there. As someone said, wonderful things in the Bible I see, some put there by you and by me. So we're not talking about extreme typology. We're just talking about what the scripture has to say about priesthood and relating that to the person of our Lord Jesus. Now when you come to think of the old economy and the sacrifices in the tabernacle, you're thinking of a brazen altar for sacrifices, the altar of burnt offerings. You're thinking of the priests, Aaron's sons, coming and offering the sacrifice. And you're thinking of the sacrifice. Maybe the burnt offering, the meal offering, the trespass offering, the sin offering, and so on. But when we come to think of Christ, there's three things I want to state here. And it's really, really very precious. And it helps you to understand the doctrine of the atonement. He is the altar, according to Hebrews. Hebrews 13.10 We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Read the passage and you find that Christ is the antitype of the altar. Then he's not only the altar, but he's the priest. Seeing then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So he is our priest. We have a priest. So he's the altar, he's the priest, and of course he is the sacrifice. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands which are a copy, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should have not that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered the holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now from, that, from those comments, I want to make three fundamental points regarding the sacrifice of Christ. And I will resort to alliteration's artful aid. So we'll talk about the voluntary character of the sacrifice, the vicarious sec- character of a sacrifice, and it is also victorious. So voluntary, he offered himself. Remember, under the old economy, the priests, Aaron's sons, came and they brought their sacrifice. And they offered the sacrifice on behalf of the people. We think of Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement is a perfect example of that. But Jesus offered himself. Now some people think that the whole idea of penal substitution is immoral. It's just not right. Uh, That's something that Steve Chalk has said and others have agreed with him. That is nonsense. The voluntary character of the atonement rules that out. Jesus was not taken by anyone and crucified and sacrificed. He offered himself. That's very important. You'll see that quite often in Hebrews. Hebrews 10 and verse 12. This priest, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, we're living in days when there are many, many translations. Some of them good, some of them bad, and some of them mediocre. But I want to quote now from a translation that maybe some of you have never heard of. But it's one that uh, I would love to tell you who pointed me to this verse and to this translation. But maybe some would misunderstand me. But maybe if those who know me well want to ask me afterwards, I will tell you. (coughs) Weymouth's translation. How many have heard of it or seen it? Some have. Good. Good. It's a very good translation. It's a paraphrase, but it translates this verse delightfully. This priest, on the contrary, after offering for sins a single sacrifice of perpetual efficacy, took a seat at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies be put put as footstool under his feet. So we're thinking of one sacrifice offered by the Lord Jesus which was himself in the stead of others in order to obtain eternal redemption for us. So it was voluntary, it was vicarious, and I will say something more about that after I deal with the the victorious aspect of it. In order to understand the fact that the sacrifice was vicarious, let us consider some of the terms that are used in Hebrews that convey the idea of penal substitution. Chapter 3 verse 3. Sorry, chapter 1 verse 3, made purification of sin. Chapter 2:17 to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 9:12 redemption. We read not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the, holy, the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Then, fourthly, chapter 9, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And chapter 9, bear the sins of many. So the Lord Jesus became the antitype of all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And all you have to do is just read casually over the first seven chapters of Leviticus. You read about the burnt offering. You read about the cereal offering. You read about the peace offering. The sin offering. The trespass offering. And you find in Hebrews chapter 9 an expression, Better Sacrifices referring to the sacrifice of Christ. And it's a plural of magnitude. It's a plural that indicates that the sacrifice of Christ was the antitype of all the sacrifices under the old economy. So remember, his death was a substitutionary death. It was vicarious. And he achieved what he set out to do, to be our great high priest and to offer himself as a sacrifice. One sacrifice for sin. So the ultimate purpose of Christ's death was to be a sacrifice for sin. It's not a matter of an example of martyrdom, and it's not. It is, in one sense, an example of supreme, a supreme act of devotion to God. But fundamentally, it was a vicarious sacrifice for sin, and by that we simply mean that Jesus. Our great high priest offered himself. He stepped into our place. He took our sins upon himself and was made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5. So when you think about the cross, you're thinking about Jesus taking our sins upon him, bearing the wrath that should have been our due, exhausted that wrath. That's implied in the word propitiation. Propitiation which is not really such a big word, and I suppose the best definition of the word is one given by the Reverend Eric Alexander when he said, the Son of God's love became the object of God's wrath so that the children of wrath, namely us, might become the objects of God's love. I think that's the simplest and probably the most profound definition of propitiation. But could I just emphasise the truths that I've been talking about in relation to the sacrifice. In 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Paul, in Galatians three and thirteen says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But then, I, I love this verse. It's been such a comfort to me when troubled with past sins. 2 Corinthians 5:21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm not stopping to try and exegete those texts or to expound them. I just leave them with you. They prove beyond doubt that the sacrifice that the great high priest made was satisfactory to God. Point number seven, my final and my time is going, his heavenly enthronement. Let's think about his priesthood in terms of his intercessory work. For this is the main point, says chapter 8 of Hebrews. We are saying, we have such an high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. Verse 24 of chapter 9 says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we're thinking of the high priest, first of all, offering sacrifice. Then we find him interceding, and then thirdly, blessing. So remember that simple analysis that we made at the beginning. So the high priest not only brings a great sacrifice for the sins of the people, but as priest he also makes intercession for them. He is called our paracletos in 1 John 2 and 2, translated advocate, one who is called into help, one who pleads our cause. So the New Testament refers to Christ as our intercessor that we find in Romans 8.34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. His intercessory work is based upon his sacrifice. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands. He's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. His intercessory work is not limited to intercessory prayer. He represents us on the grounds of his death, and he defends us Not only against the devil, not only against sin, but against the law and against our own conscience. And he secures by that work our forgiveness. Now here is something that we need to hear more often. Our eternal salvation depends upon his intercessory work. Could I quote chapter 725 again? Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I repeat, our eternal salvation depends upon the work that Christ is doing now at the right hand of God. And of course, the intercessory work is based upon his sacrifice. So I want to make three or four points and then It'll be open up for discussion. First of all, I'll repeat, our eternal salvation depends upon this work. Secondly, our prayer life also depends upon his intercession and upon the intercession of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes our prayers effectual. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then it says, Let us therefore come boldly through the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're not just interested here in a doctrine that our intellects can grasp. We're thinking of something so important in the life of the Christian that the effectiveness of his prayer depends upon it. God intercedes God the Son intercedes for us before the presence of God. And because of that, he's able to aid us and to aid us in our temptation. So remember this. Here's a simple analysis. As our great high priest and as the one who intercedes for us now, he saves us, he succors us, and he sympathizes with us. And to me, that's the source of great comfort to all believers. So remember, the Lord Jesus is the Prophet par excellence. He's the Priest par excellence, and He's the King, and He reigns in the hearts and the lives of His people. Amen.
0: Thank you, John. We're using the microphone here. Um. Right. Does anyone like to begin by saying something, or asking something, or making a comment? If not, I'll call upon you by name. <laughs> Colin, I see you huddling away in the corner there. Does that mean you want to ask a question? Yes. Not why I'm huddled. Eh?
2: Not why I'm huddled. Do you want to say something about the animal uh, that was offered? Uh, Can you all
0: hear that question or comment? Can you speak up, please, Colin? Please.
2: Do you want to talk normally about the, in terms of the voluntary nature of the sacrifice, the difference between the animal and Christ?
1: Right, the law having a shadow of good things to come, chapter 10, verse 1. So we're talking about a shadow. We're talking about a type. I thought I was speaking through this. Is it not working
0: at the moment? Just
1: for me. Oh, Right. So I need to use this, right? Okay. Right. When we go to Leviticus, and by the way, Leviticus is probably one of the most important books in our Old Testament. You can't understand Hebrews until you understand Leviticus. Usually, when we want to read through our Bible, we we usually stop at Leviticus because of the sacrifice and so forth and the repetition. Now when you come to Leviticus you find there's the type. So the type is that a sinner or a worshipper would bring a sacrifice. It had to be a specific type of animal either a bull or a bullock or a sheep or a goat. It had to be without spot, it had to be stainless. And it was offered by the priest after the offerer would place his hands and identify it with it and then it was offered to God. Now, when you come to the New Testament and think of the sacrifice of Christ, the act of sacrifice was not done by the wicked hands that crucified him on the cross. No, he offered himself. That voluntary character of his death is imperative. We can't bypass that. He offered himself It was his plan to come to do the will of God. Even in the burnt offering, we see that Christ's sacrifice was a supreme act of devotion to God, typified in the burnt offering. So he offered himself, and I quote Hebrews again, without spot to God. That was a perfect burnt offering. He offered himself, and of course it was offered to God. Does that answer your question?
2: wasn't voluntary mm-hmm. uh, could not be voluntary but um, there's a point that uh, Alec Matia makes and I think it's probably escaped me now but um, a point about the, the passage in Hebrews about, and by that will you've been made holy once <coughs> for all
0: that the I um, think uh, as far as I understand remembering Alec Matthias said something to the effect that animals had no choice in the matter they were offered. That's right, yeah. that's right. The Lord Jesus yeah. had a choice.
1: But the, uh, the offerer had to be willing to sacrifice the animal. So the willingness was in the part of the offerer to give the animal for sacrifice.
2: But the heart of sin is in the will also, I think. And there's, there's something, is, is there not something in that as well?
1: I don't think so. I think we are reading something into it that's not there. But I think the basic principle is that the offerer came willingly to worship God. And in faith he offered his sacrifice without any knowledge of Christ and his atonement. But God saw that. But the emphasis in Hebrews is that not is the willingness on the part of the high priest to offer himself without spot to God. And that Christ did. And of course, the willingness of Christ and the obedience of Christ is a very important factor in determining the nature of justification, for example. And it's part of the atonement. Anybody else? John? Can you get the... The Gentleman on the front here.
2: Could you amplify the distinction between personal salvation through the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross, Mm -hmm. and that which you indicate comes through his intercessory work in heaven.
1: Right. Did
0: you all catch the question? Or not? Right. Yes, I think they did.
1: Right, okay. Salvation has at least three dimensions. There's salvation from the penal consequences of our sins, there's salvation that is uh, progressive, that's part and parcel of our sanctification. And then there's the ultimate uh, salvation from the very presence of sin. That comes at the rapture or the second coming, whatever your ecclesiastical belief or your eschatological beliefs are. But we'll not get into that tonight, will we? <laughs> we not
0: unless we must. <laughs> <laughs> we don't
1: must. <laughs> so when we're thinking of our salvation we think of the atonement of Christ. That's the foundation. That's why I insisted on emphasizing that the basis or the grounds of his intercessory work was the sacrifice of Calvary. So we're not divorcing them. So the matter of my salvation and being kept depends upon him, not upon me or my faith. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So... Part and parcel of the work that Christ does is his intercessory work, so we saved us as to right to the end and that 's the way I understand it i 'd like to hear your comments on Melchizedek because the description in Hebrews of him can fit no other person than Jesus than our Lord Jesus now as we most of us, all of us here, will accept the sovereignty of God. Um, in his sovereignty, could he not have appeared in human form in Old Testament times? Well, After he did. all, the decade tells us he had no beginning or ending, no right. father or mother, and so on. Right. The, uh, the, the, the normal Jesus? position on that is that uh, the silence of Scripture about his ancestry. The scripture is silent upon that and he's arguing on the basis of silence. Said that you
2: have
1: no yes, but if you... Where is my Bible? Sorry. 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 Chapter 7. It's the accepted view by Philip Edgeworth Hughes by F.F. F. Bruce that he's re- reasoning there and arguing on the basis of silence. There's no reference to his father and mother. It doesn't actually say he had no father and mother. So it's it's reasoning out. some actually now the Lord Jesus did appear in the Old Testament. You've heard of the theophanies, That's the
2: word I think of. right?
1: I but I don't th- I don't think it's a theophany or a Christophany because it's talking about a type and it's talking about an order. You see, I I made the point that the Aaronic priesthood was not adequate to fully explain the priesthood of Christ so they had to bring another character in and of course there's no reference to the birth or the death of Melchizedek it's just said in chapter 13 of Genesis that he was the high priest that he was the king of righteousness the king of peace so he's a type of Christ not the other way around and I know that there are those who try to interpret it in terms of theophanies. I, do you understand what I mean by theophanies? It, it's one of those doctrines...
0: doesn't, Norman. Can you explain it? <laughs> Right. I, I'm taking the part of those who are less well-informed than others. Right, okay. And I suspect everyone doesn't understand. Okay,
1: that. right, okay. Uh, it, it is quite a hard one to understand. But if I were dealing with the person of Christ and dealing with his deity and humanity, I would have to deal with the Theophanies. And the Theophanies are the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Theophanies means pre-appearance of God, but that's why I'm saying Christophanies, pre-incarnate appearance. An example of it is Genesis chapter 18. Do you remember the three men who came to Abraham. And we're told that two of them went off and went to Noah. Lot. Sorry. Tired. I get tired. My mind gets tired at the same time of the night. And,
0: sorry? No, no, I understand.
1: <laughs> so you understand. Anyway. So uh, when Abraham came out to speak to the angel of the Lord, he worshipped him. He bowed down and worshipped him. And, of course, the Lord Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad and he also says before Abraham was I am so before Abraham existence the Lord Jesus had permanent existence and so here was one example another example is uh, the father of Samson do you remember his name is Secret he asked what is your name my name is Secret and by the way that's the same word as is found in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 his name shall be wonderful, not wonderful counsellor. Wonderful is a noun and is a title of Christ so i don 't think nevertheless that this is a, a theophanes. I think it 's a, a type of Christ.
2: I just wondered about your um, view on whether you thought Paul
0: was the author of Hebrews or not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking that question. I was about to ask it anyway you're going to answer it well well I have an answer um, but I'll not tell you what it is until I've heard yours <laughs>
1: I, think, I think that in terms of introductions there are about 13 possible authors of, Genesis, of Hebrews and personally I don't think we know who the author was and in light of the subject matter of Hebrews it's better to leave it anonymous because the subject of it is Christ and the supremacy of Christ So I don't think Paul wrote it. I don't think uh, Barnabas or who else was named. Apollos.
0: I'll say something which is probably very provocative. I think he did. (laughs) Uh, Because as I read Hebrews, it feels very Pauline.
1: Not if you read it in the Greek text. Well, clearly. (laughs) See? Did you hear what he said there?
0: Not if I read the Greek text. I didn't. No, it's, the style is different. Totally different. But I'm the plowman. Right. Um. I know. And yep.
1: we just have to depend on scholarship on this one. Yes, I uh... know. And I'm not suggesting I'm the scholar, by the hmm? way. Sorry, John.
0: No, but you are suggesting I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> are you trying and to get right. your own back? <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right.
1: I've been teasing him all day. I'll not tell you what it was about. So he's just trying to get his own back
0: now. <laughs> you don't think it matters who wrote it? No. The Holy Spirit wrote it. Yep.
2: At the point where you talked about the T V evangelist, and I'm not sure whether that my mind then flew off on a tangent with the mention of that. I was unsure whether you were talking about Jesus being unable to sin. In no, which I case wasn't,
1: I wasn't no. talking about that. No. Okay. That's another subject. In
2: which case, I was going to say, what about the temptations Perhaps. and were the real yeah.
0: temptations? I'm but not. I
1: still think he couldn't have sinned because yeah. God cannot sin. Oh,
0: yeah. But, but I, that, 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 wasn't, that wasn't the, the subject. he could have sinned, but he was, didn't. Is yes. that what you're saying? Isn't mm. it? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in
1: the impeccable humanity of Christ. So he could not have sinned. He could not have But sinned. he was tempted to sin. Yes. Yes. In which case. I, and experienced all that temptation meant. Yep but he was God and we must never forget he was God incarnate and to say that Jesus Christ the God man could have sinned is to say that God could have sinned James no. says that chapter 2 Cut. but, but uh, what
2: it must have been impossible
1: <laughs> no I don't think it was because you have in which something
2: is in nature like ours? Yeah.
1: <laughs> made like unto sinful flesh okay. but sin apart so there was a distinctiveness even about its humanity. I, I, I know the debate, and I'm very much aware of it, but I, I believe that Jesus Christ was God's Son incarnate. So whatever way we think about it, the theanthropic person, we're talking about the hypostatic union, to use technical terms. When we consider them both together, they must all that he did was done perfectly. His obedience was perfect and all related to the work of salvation. So he could not possibly have sinned. He said, The prince of this world cometh and finding, he findeth nothing in me. And to me that puts it beyond all question. But I'm aware that Charles Hodge and others did believe it. And if you want something really strong to read read shed on the impeccable humanity of Christ, is in volume 2 and it's excellent, really good stuff and it goes into all the details but uh, I'm, I'm standing here thinking of what I could say now and uh, if I started something I would say something else and oh, it would be here to midnight <laughs> but my position is clear, yes
2: Simon Uh, You mentioned that Steve Chalk has attacked the doctrine of the atonement. Uh, Not everybody here will necessarily know what that's about. I wonder if very briefly you wanted to reiterate how it is that he's gone about that attack and why he's so wrong and why we must encourage people to stay well clear of it.
0: The question is, who is Steve Chalk, what has he said, and why is he quite wrong? I think... Is right. that right? Yes. And can you speak at the microphone, Norman? He's
1: he's a Baptist minister. I don't know where, but he's been on television a lot. South of England, I think around so. Around the London area, but he has denied a substitutionary atonement or penal substitution. He used that
0: ghastly phrase right. isn't me that uh, God was committing child abuse.
1: Yeah, I was, he, he was intending to cause trouble. Yeah. There's no doubt about that.
0: It seemed to me to be misunderstanding see, of the Godhead too. Yeah,
1: but it's a fundamental principle. I want to quote a, a theologian that you might not have heard of, but if you come from a Brethren background and you are dispensationalists, you will have heard of him. Lewis Sperry Schaefer. he was the man who started uh, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary along with Griffith Thomas. And he said, As the righteous judge, the Christ pronounced the divine sentence upon sin. As the saviour of sinners, he stooped down and took upon his breast the doom that he himself had imposed. That's penal substitution. And that makes it very, very clear. And you see, what is happening today, I, I sat down the other night at home and I wrote down all the different heresies that are abroad today, that are being taught by men who claim to be evangelicals. Now there's one, there's one that's uh, uh, very familiar to, to us in Ireland, and it's open theism. I don't know whether you've heard of it or not. If you haven't, you've been blessed. But it's a denial of the sovereignty of God. And it's just saying that God's not in control, so he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow but he has resources in himself that he can cope with it. Now, that's not the God that I worship or the God that I serve. And these, these heresies, they're attacking the gospel. And the same is true with, dare I mention, the new perspective on Paul. Uh, but again, it's an attack on the gospel. And I discovered that there's not only justification that's at threat here, under threat it's the very gospel itself the doctrine of scripture the doctrine of regeneration the doctrine of assurance has all been attacked and why, why do men want to men in academic positions want to attack the fundamentals of the gospel I don't know but Steve Chalk is another heresy and it is a heresy and yet he claims to be evangelical it's not what a man claims it's what he is and what he teaches Steve
2: Jobs publishes things in lots of magazines that young Christians read Yes it makes it difficult.
1: Yeah, that's true and you see the problem is that people think because he's a minister of the gospel he has to be right or there's some degree of truth in it uh, I don't accept that
2: I mean, I know him quite well, and uh, he is a very provocative person. That's the problem sometimes. I think he provokes, and whether sometimes that gets in the way, I'm not too sure, which I'm sure he probably
0: does. I guess the question is why does he want to provoke? Well, exactly. You know,
1: yeah. Yeah. You see, in academic circles, there's there's a justification for bringing up controversial issues and challenging students but not to the point of questioning the gospel. And that's what he does. I mean, if, there's, if Jesus Christ did not die for sinners, where are we all? We're lost. We have no gospel.
0: Yes. I'd like to
2: make a comment and say that uh, yeah, we, we shouldn't be surprised by these people. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> 2 Peter and 2 tell us that, uh, you know... Uh, very False strong. teachers will creep in. Yes. Yeah. They won't come in with a fanfare. They'll creep in. And once they're in, they'll then start to spread these heresies. And whereas before they seemed to be respectable uh, in yeah. terms of their, their knowledge and understanding the, of, of the gospel, then they reveal their true colors. And, and other people, even in this region, in high authority, are, are following the same line now. Mean Bishop of Durham. Absolutely, yeah. I, I wasn't going to mention his name. am. Sorry. But in many other respects, it appear to be quite um, acceptable in in terms of evangelical truth. But then they reveal themselves. Yes. It shouldn't be surprised, but we need to be on our guard.
1: Oh yes, we need to be on our guard. You see, there there are controversial things that we're talking about there, and a man could believe certain things and yet be saved.
0: No, that's probably sorry.
1: Don't and be saved, but these are fundamentals. These are, there, there's no gospel. If Jesus didn't die for me, I'm lost. I have not no gospel to preach. So we're talking about fundamentals. and It's very important to stress that. My old father-in-law, who was a, a farmer in Northern Ireland, and he used to talk about all these different cults, and he used to use farming language. He said, they're all the same sow's litter. I don't know how you know what that meant. <laughs> but that's true. And I was I was in Germany a few months ago with Vimo. Where's, where is the chap? Oh, he's outside. But uh, Stephen knows Vimo well. And uh, it was at a, a church of Tamil people. I was speaking through an interpreter. And they were talking about the... the the TV evangelists and the God channel. And uh, they said, one man said, why can we not have these miracles and raising the dead and healing the sick? And I thought to myself, standing at the front, remember somebody was interpreting for me, I thought, uh, now I could give a long, drawn out theological answer to this. But I thought, no, I won't. And I just said something that was very effective. I said to them, is Christ not enough for you? And I saw a reaction from an older man. He broke down and cried. And sometimes a simple answer like, that's the best. Christ should be the all-sufficient one to every one of us. And when we were talking about his glory. We're talking about what he means to us. Unto you which believe, he is precious. I said something recently and a number have picked me up on it. I have said that institutionalized religion has failed us totally. But somebody asked me, what's the alternative to it? And I think it's a personal relationship, a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, whereby he is permanently precious to me. And I think that's fundamental. And I believe that with all my heart okay John.
0: yes is there any other point anyone wants to gentleman over the far corner there John take the microphone over please. I won't go no I've thought about modern
2: man and relationship to the gospel in the last six months to a year and what I think it has happened is that modern western man has lost the power of the symbol He seems to have, if you mentioned it, he came out tonight with the cross, um, God. All these symbols mean little to modern man. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes, I do. And that's what I mean by institutionalized religion, because all of these symbols are symbols of institutionalized religion. But we need to get back to this principle of a relationship with God. I mean, I'm Reformed, and I confess that I have no problem with that. I'm a Calvinist, and I was going to say I'm proud of it, John, but you wouldn't allow me to say that.
0: I thought you were going to say you're humble and you're proud of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think one of the big problems of today, with all of us, especially in Reformed circles, we don't seem to realize the importance of an experience of God, a real experience of God, I was talking yesterday in County Fermanagh about the unseen world of spiritual reality. I think it was John Stott said that. The unseen world of spiritual reality. And we're talking about a real experience of God. And I think that that's what we need to be thinking of. That's the answer to what you're saying. And we're talking about an individual thing.
0: I suppose I have a problem with your word modern man. Is modern man any different? No. To man? What's the difference? Technology. Well, I know. I understand that.
1: It's, just sin has become more sophisticated. Yeah. But sin is still sin.
0: Yes, John. Um,
2: Peter says that we are a, a royal priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Is it incompatible for <coughs> leaders of churches who call themselves priests? Are they sort of... Um, uh, Say what you think. <laughs> are they taking the place of Christ, in other words? Or? We're in
1: premises that belong to the Anglican Communion, so i better be careful. There's nowhere in the Bible that we find that the ministers of the gospel are priests. We are a priesthood. And you'll notice we're royal priests and holy priests. Holy priests offer up spiritual sacrifices. And the ultimate is the offering up of ourselves. Hebrews or Romans 12.1 And the, 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 the role of the royal priest is to show forth the virtues or the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. That's the job of every believer. Not a, a select company so the idea of priests belongs to the old economy it's very widespread, the very- oh I know it is I know it is
2: go ahead um, in the in the beginning of uh, uh, Hebrews 6 right there's a, a recount of uh, some of the Elementary, as the writer calls them, matters of the faith. And among them are washings and laying on of hands. And how how should
1: we understand this? Well, I I don't think those are the basic rudiments of Christianity, but of the religion of the Old Testament.